Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to HOA It's a True Story. Today is a special day. Our guests are our very own GBG team, Bill Mann, Russell Brown, and Ryan Brown. Today, we're talking about what to include in an RFP or request for proposals explained. Thank you guys for joining us today, and welcome back to HOA It's a True Story. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with you, Bill. Tell me, what do you think is the difference between a proposal, a bid, and a work order, and why are they different? Well, a proposal is going to be a request from a contractor, and they're going to write a scope of work based off of whatever information you provided them, whether it's a, some type of a water repair or siding replacement or something like that. Where a bid is when or our vendor receives a document with all the information attached, they should provide a bid number with. So there is a difference between the two. A work order request, you know, this is one of the things we were just discussing is that a lot of times proposal requests come in and they appear to be work order requests where it's, you know, contractor, please go out and repair this. And so sometimes they need to be careful with the wording and how things come in. And a lot of times we have to go back and double check with the client saying, do you really want us to go out and fix this? Or do you want a bid number? That type of thing. Uh, it also helps too, if you're sending over work order requests, particularly portfolio managers, a lot of times you guys have a spending limit. It's kind of nice to know, hey, I can only really authorize up to X dollars. So if this is going to be more than that, I'm going to need to get a bid. So those are information that's helpful when you send those requests in. Yeah, that's really important that they tell us if it's a go do this or not. Brian, with so many new managers kind of entering into the industry, it seems like a lot of them are not completely familiar with the process. Are you finding that? Yes. And one of the things that comes up a lot is the misunderstanding and the differences between all the items we talked about. With proposals, normally those are coming up during a board meeting, the request for a proposal. Someone on the board may be in the a discussion and it comes up that they want their fences looked at for the property. And a lot of the times the contractor will receive the request for proposal with very vague information in terms of what they actually want a cost for, whether it's servicing and maintenancing the fence with just miscellaneous dry rot is the intent to replace the fence in its entirety, or do they simply want an inspection of the fence and come back with a report of what's missing? So for a new manager, that whole process can seem very daunting. So an important question that they can ask in the meeting is, do they want proposals for this? Do you want an inspection of these items? Or would you like them to just go out and perform the work? That would be a great step in the right direction. And I think, you know, it's really hard because here they are just taking on this question from the board. So Russell, how important is it for the board to be educated on this process and not just the manager? Yeah, it's important to remember that board members are volunteers and they're not experts in this field. So they're relying a lot on industry professionals from management to contractors, to construction managers, to architects and engineers to kind of guide them on what needs to take place. I'm always a big believer in clear expectations, deliver better results. 
So when you're discussing why it should be important for boards to be educated on this, if they can convey in a simple way of what their goals are, and that can be reiterated to the vendors, that always delivers better bids. You know, sometimes we see board members give directives to property managers that are not very clear of what their intent is. So by the time that the property manager has transitioned that information to the contractor, it could be too vague or too misleading of what their intent is, like what Ryan was discussing with the, like the example fence proposal. So clear expectations always deliver the better results and by educating the boards of how to convey what they're looking for always works out better on the vendor side. Don't you think though that the boards themselves are just responding on the spot to probably some homeowner that's complaining in the board meeting and so they're just kind of yeah go ahead miss manager just go get some bids and let's see you know do you think they're just trying to placate that grumpy homeowner yeah and by vetting the request a little more thoroughly and and truly taking the time to understand what they're looking for it is going to help on the contractor side, especially so that we're not wasting our time focusing on building a proposal around an idea that is not the intent of the board or the homeowner. Right. That brings a really good point up because I mean, you could have a a board saying uh, my expectation is to have them do this as cheaply as possible. Or the other expectation is I want to only use the best materials and make sure this is a long a repair that's going to have life expectancy of a lot longer than a cheap repair. So those kind of expectations that are sent over with a bid request, like replace my draw right at siding, you know, super helpful because then you can really focus in on what their intent is. And our feelings will not get hurt if there is a budget intended for the project. If the board only wants to spend, say, $5,000 on a particular project, that's completely fine. But then we have a marching area in terms of designing a scope that matches the budget. And we're doing that up front compared to us misinterpreting it and creating something much over budget to where we're already working back towards that $5,000 mark where we could have understood that up front. And, you know, I don't think we're talking about making managers become experts. Bill and I interviewed a board member a few weeks ago that was saying, you know, they went in and learned all this information about landscaping and got certified in roofing and all these things so that they felt they were they were making educated requests. But I don't think it really needs to go to that extreme. I think if we give them some parameters to work with and learn from, you know, that's what we're really talking about. So, Bill, how does the board know then if they need a design professional before they're even submitting RFPs or bid requests? They may not know. And that may be one of the things that have their manager, you know, go and inquire about. And that's an important fact because you may just be spinning your wheels if you need a design professional. I mean, pretty much anything these days that's structural has, you know, a high dollar level besides some pretty basic maintenance repairs is going to require some kind of a permit from their local municipality. And the issue nowadays is we used to be able to get what they called like for like replacement permits over the counter. Those days are pretty much gone. And so you have to have drawings. And so it's important that they have these. And one of the things I do recommend to boards and management companies, if they have a lot of little projects they know are coming up, particularly out of their reserve study, 
get the drawings done early and then have the bid packages ready to go to send out. So um, we're going we're to talk more about timelines in a minute, but I want to stay on this one concept you talked about on the permits with all these new legislations that have passed and are requiring different forms of inspections and much more in the way of drawings. How easy is it to get a permit for something that, you know, may be relatively simple on the property? Depends on the building department. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely some seeing are easy a, and some are, are very difficult. So definitely seeing a, a different level of requirement between municipality groups. Some are very easy to work with. And then some in the major Bay Area cities, which I'm sure a lot of people listening have experienced over the past year or so, is getting a permit has become pretty time consuming. Russell, you're doing a lot in both East Bay and San Francisco proper. How difficult has the permit process become for you? Well, I can give one example. We have a project in San Francisco that went through a post-litigation repair scope from a design professional, relatively straightforward, and it's going on 15 months of time that has passed since the submittal. So needless to say, it's not going great in San Francisco right now. There's a lot of things that we just are not used to seeing. Some of the questions that come out from the building department and the planning department, health of the department, all these different people, they're asking some very generic questions that in the past used to be somewhat of industry standard, but because they're asking these questions, it's pushing these projects out just to ungodly amounts of time. Okay, let me and be clear. What, you're, you're saying they've had it in their possession 15 months. Yes, since about roughly April of last year. Now, do you think this is a result of COVID or is it a result of the shortages of manpower or just they're adding so many more questions and they're looking for so much more detail? That's a really tough question. I'm not really sure what has caused this huge setback. My gut tells me that they still have a large portion of folks working from home, which has changed the utilization rate and their abilities to turn around projects in a timely manner. But nonetheless, every jurisdiction is different. San Francisco does seem to be uh, one of the more difficult ones right now, along with Daly City, Fremont, and, and a few others. How about you, Ryan? I think a big change that happened during the pandemic was a lot of them went to an online platform that weren't fully refined when they decided to launch them all. So there's been some uneasiness from a lot of different vendors that work with the municipalities to get permits because you're sub doing these submissions online and they kind of go into this dark hole where you're not sure if someone's received it, you're not sure if it's actively being worked on, where in days past, we used to be able to sit across from a counter from the planning department and work with a representative through the project. And then after that's been addressed, they literally send you to the next counter where you're working with the building department. And going to that online platform has removed all of that. And I imagine the output is a little bit slower, so their backlog is a little bit higher. And the combination of all of those, I think, is why we're seeing the delays. Interesting. Russell, let's talk more about the timelines. 
I wanted to explain that another unfortunate portion that comes with these delayed timelines in the building departments is obviously we all know that the supply chain and um, material pricing has been an absolute roller coaster since COVID. Some products raising 300% in their cost over a matter of six months. So with that said, when you're dealing with these delays in the building departments, you're going to experience most likely some sort of material update from your contractor regarding the pricing for this project because it is fluctuating so much. Most contractors are not guaranteeing estimates beyond, I'd say, about 15 to 30 days. A combination of supply chain and building departments are really creating some delays, but Bill mentioned kind of a pre-planning requirement if you know it's in the reserves, but what if it's not in the reserves? What if it's a emergency response, what can the board do to kind of push things along to get things moving? Is there anything? There isn't as much as you you might think. The emergency shoring and life safety issues typically does nudge things along a little bit faster than um, just submitting traditionally. However, that we've seen life safety stuff get brought to the city's attention per legislation, right? And we have not seen the response that we would like to see on some of these items, which leads boards to having to emergency shore with their contractors just to make entities safe while it works its way through the building department. As Bill and Ryan were saying, you know, in a days not so long ago, we used to be able to go into the building departments and sit across from someone and, and have that negotiation and explain the situation. But uh, those days seem to be far gone. So uh, this is kind of the new world we're all adapting to and everything is taking much longer than it used to. So getting with your contractor and understanding permit timeframes and, and, and whatnot is going to help a lot. But even the timeframes that contractors are being given right now are not always true, as in our example with the San Francisco building department. Okay, so back to some rudimentary basics here. What does the manager and the board need to put when they're sending out an RFP? The amount of information that's required in an RFP isn't substantial, but there's a few basic things that can really help accelerate the process. For instance, just being as specific as possible with what the actual request is. If the request belongs to a single unit, is it complex wide? If it does involve particular residents, then the contact information for those residents always is very helpful. We're going to end up asking for it regardless, especially if it's going to require access in the home. Also, quantities. If there's a specific amount of number of things that are to be inspected, for instance, if there's 10 decks, listing those 10 decks with the addresses, the contact information. And then from there, is the contractor going to have any issues accessing these areas? Are they in the backyards? Do we need to let the homeowners know that their backyard gates need to be unlocked? Is there a gate code to get into the property? Those are all things that we're going to end up asking anyways. So including them on the front side is incredibly helpful. Another thing I want to add is, you know, address and city. I can't tell you how many proposals we get where there's <laughs> an association, no address, no city. And, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of the same names that are used over and over again. So. Yeah, that, 
That is also, something that's always been crazy is the duplication of property names. Also, the name of the community itself is helpful because in most cases, a lot of these groups have the name of the community in their database. So sometimes it's just referenced by the street address. So having that community name is also very helpful. Oh, that's a good point. One of the things you kind of touched on, I want to expand on, if it's going to be affecting a homeowner, it's really important that they give the information because they have pets, whether mm -hmm. they have somebody with special needs and if we have to go into the unit, it's just the more information and the opportunity to talk to the affected homeowner is going to be really important. Also, if we're servicing common area in a community, it's important that uh, if there's keys or access codes required, or if there's lock boxes on the site for us to be able to have those or know where we can get them. And if we're painting any of the areas, having the color codes that you guys have on file for the property makes everything a lot more streamlined. Okay, so kind of real quickly, let's recap that they need to have access information of where we're going, the names of the property, the names of the association or homeowner, any codes that are related to the request. Contact information. And also, is it important for the HOA or board to have somebody there to meet you to maybe express what their real desires are for the repair? A lot of the times that would be necessary and sometimes groups will ask for that especially if the request comes up in a board meeting and it's really being led by a, a certain individual and they're very particular of how they think it should go it's very helpful having some dates and times available that they could meet us and walk Good. us through what the expectation is so that way we can get it right the first time and keep the process accelerated in getting you a accurate proposal Bill, I've noticed a lot of the management companies have these software programs now that kind of spit out the proposal request. Do you find yeah, they, track, they track the request usually internally? Do they fill them out pretty clearly? I mean, is is all the information we're talking about in those types of RFP I think some programs? of it is I think it's like any computer system. If there's enough information put into the database originally, then yes. Pending, you know, I don't know where the customer service departments that, you know, gen out the requests always come from. So some of it may just be the initial setup where they haven't done there. And one of my other pet peeves, I'm going to add to this, particularly since Russ and I work in more urban environments. It's always nice to know what day the street cleaners are coming through because when you go to Chicago or Oakland and half the street parking is gone, there is no place to <laughs> So like, that's a really good fact. Another day. Um, Another thing that I wanted to cover that's also really helpful with requests for proposals is when your next board meeting date is. Yeah, oh, yeah. It helps us give a lot of structure on the vendor side about how we can prioritize things for you, or if we need to be transparent that we will not be able to hit that date. Given the nature of what economy and market we're in right now, we're seeing estimate time frames taking between you know anywhere from three to eight weeks depending on the size of the project and the the necessity of it so always try to be diligent in getting this information to your contractors because a lot of them are going to be busy around this time and especially given that it's summer and a lot of projects have been slated to go during this time period whether it's roofs or paint projects so just be cognizant of that 
and, and make sure you're trying to give us as much information as possible. Another angle to consider is when the bids actually come in from multiple vendors, take a moment to read through them to make sure that the vendors are interpreting the project the same way. Uh, a common misconception is that once all the bids come back in is to assume that they're all interpreting it the same way and they're producing the same project with the same materials. Take a moment to read through and make sure they're addressing the correct areas, the quantities are correct, and they're building them with similar materials between mm -hmm. the vendors because that way, when you get those proposals in front of the board, they're ready to go and they've been pre-screened, if you will. So Russell, you brought up a point that I kind of want to keep going on about the board meeting date, knowing when that's going to take place. Bill, do you think managers should disclose in the RFP if this is for budgetary purposes? Because you said, hey, they should start doing this way in advance, but we know that we've got a supply chain issue and we know we've got an economy that has been scaling in costs. So should they disclose that or should they just try to go for it? I think, you know, Ryan kind of brought up a good point, you know, saying, you know, here's our budget for this job. So we have a better idea of how to, to scope it or come back and say, you know, the budget isn't going to make it. And I think it helps the contractor understand what's going on. And if it's really just they're out looking for pricing right now. I mean, we can help them with budgetary pricing fairly accurately. And we do it for a lot of different uh, folks, the attorneys that are in litigation and stuff like that. So they can get a ballpark idea so they can plan ahead if they need to raise money, mm -hmm. um, adjustments in their reserve. But sending three or four vendors out just to randomly build projects that aren't going to happen, you know, it's expensive. In this industry, we don't charge for estimates and you know and it burns out the vendor i can't tell you how many jobs you know i've gone out and looked at you know over a five or six year period and it's the same project and and they still haven't done it and it's usually coming down to the fact they don't have funding i think one of the things that's really critical for the manager when they're preparing to send out an rfp is that they know what type of project it is is it a work order is it a reserve project is it a post litigation? Is it a rehabilitation? What exactly are they preparing for? Because that will help them determine the information that needs to go out, whether they need a design professional involved or not, and you know how long the permit process related to that will be. What if they don't know how much it's gonna cost, so they're not sure if they have the project funded? How do you help them through that process? That's what I think they need to say, you know, we've got this upcoming project. I think everybody's, you know, dealt with the spiraling cost of construction and reserve funds, not keeping up with that. So I think, you know, a lot of times I think they can just kind of do a price check and say, hey, this is kind of ballparking what our project looks like. This is how much money we have to set aside. Are we close or, you know, are we going to be 50% you know, funded or 60% funded? You know, where do you think we are in, in the whole animal on that? And not Ryan, what do you think? I think we're also seeing a disconnect between the reserve studies and the actual cost of construction. In a lot of instances, the reserve study is a little bit dated to accommodate the upcoming costs. And when they reference the reserve, you know, they're allocating a certain amount of dollars towards the project and all the bids come in almost double 
it kind of puts the manager and a board in a unique situation of, okay, well, we know we need to service this project, but now it's over budget. Where do we go from here? You know, Bill and I did a podcast a few weeks back and we were talking about the reserves and they were saying, well, we're already telling them to increase it 10% and we're giving them the, you got to go higher. It's not even close to 10%. It was 10% last quarter. So do you think the governing document requirements have any effect on how they go about getting their project launched? Is that an issue? Well, some governing documents are required three bids for any type of repair or a certain dollar amount. Sometimes there's no dollar amount. Some governing documents only require three bids if there's it's a reserve item. So those can affect how, you know, what the manager and board have to do in order to operate under those guidelines. Well, no doubt things have been challenging, but I hope we've kind of shed a little bit of light for the manager and the board members on what needs to go into a request for a proposal and what the differences are versus asking for a bid and a work order. And if there's any questions on this, feel free to reach out to any of us on the podcast and we can help navigate that for you. This is the time of the show where we like to share a favorite story. (laughs) Anybody have a good story they'd like to talk about on RFPs? I can tell a recent story. So we're work, I'm working on a clubhouse that was built in the 1800s. So it's kind of an interesting building and it's working with the retiree community. So there's lots of folks out there, you know, deciding what they're going to do. So we came up with a scope of work to fix their second floor balcony deck that wraps around the entire building and everything was green lighted to go. And then they decided new board president came in. I want more bids on this. So they went out and get bids and then suddenly got a bid that's, you know, 30% less. And so by the time we wound through the process of making sure the scope of work, even on the last round, we say, here's the scope of work, bid to this, put a dollar number at the bottom. The contractor changed the waterproofing material. And then we, they found out during the process, everybody had to put their square foot number down, that his square footage was off by 60%. <laughs> Ooh. That's pretty substantial. I have a story that I think actually Russell was with me on this one. You know, managers develop relationships with different folks in our industry and in their effort to be kind and and try to give equal opportunity. We had a manager that asked us to go out and look at a project, asked an attorney, asked a design professional, and asked another contractor. So you really kind of got things boogered up when it was a potential litigation job and now you've got architects doing formal work on it contractors doing formal work because now you have all this disclosure problems so know who your audience is and know what your project is that you're sending people out don't just send out friends right you know make sure you're sending the appropriate person to go look at that If you do have any questions or you'd like further information about an RFP, feel free to reach out to us at inquiry at gbgroupinc.com or any of the many people that have been on the show today. Ryan, Russell, Bill, thank you so much for helping out. Always appreciate it. And we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for having me. Thank you. 